You got an extra hour of sleep last night. How many of you didn't know what to do with that? Uh, just before we get started, um, I would like to personally thank you all uh, so much for uh, all of the generous gifts and gestures of love on Pastor Appreciation Day. Um, thank you on behalf of my family. I know that I speak for all of the pastors when I say it's our privilege and our honor uh, to be here, to bless you, to do life with you. So thank you for all that you do for us. Uh, God bless you. Uh, the week before last, I had an opportunity to take a team to, uh, on a missions trip. And we went to Puerto Rico. Um, there's a couple of members of the team here this afternoon. I'm going to ask them to come and take the platform and um, just share a little bit uh, about what's on their heart, or it might only be one. Okay, it's me and Paul. Um, it was an amazing experience, uh, and I'm going to let Paul share a few words from his perspective about the trip. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, if I could just leave with uh, one thought about the trip, and I think it uh, not only applies to this trip, but uh, missions trips in general. One of the lies of the enemy is that you can't change the world. And in fact, you can change the world if you do it one family, one person at a time. And you're going to see that here, that the lives of this family was transformed as we completed the mission, uh, we did a lot, as Pastor Tony will, will elaborate, we did a lot of work. We, you can see we fixed the uh, roof, we uh, painted the house, gave him a new awning. But what was really impactful is not so much that you, we builded, build the house, is that we build the kingdom of God in this family. Right. And I'll just leave you with one quick story. Uh, it's really, I don't know if there's any baseball fans, I'm sure there are, in the house. The gentleman whose house we fixed, you know, he didn't have the resources himself to, to, to build a house. And he was praying that God would send uh, a team to do this. And he was so overwhelmed with, with the work that we did that the only method he had to pay us back was through his baseball memorabilia. Now, if any baseball fans here... For somebody to depart with baseball cards from 40 years ago is pretty, it's powerful. Uh, he had, you know, we had, he had a poster of Roberto Clemente, so I was a big baseball fan. But, to, you know, to see it was stunning that he gave, he had so little, but he gave all that he had. And it culminated that he had a very strong relationship with a person on a team. And he was so moved, not only with the tears, that he, he handed the, the, this individual a Johnny Bench uh, glass was one with souvenir with all the. Now, for baseball fans, that's that's staggering for for him to give uh, baseball memorabilia that's so valuable. But he didn't have the financial resources. But he was so touched by the gesture, and he his his final words to us was that I'll remember you guys for the rest of our lives. So when you when people say you can't change the world. You do change the world. You just do it incrementally. Thank you. This was an amazing experience. Uh, the picture on the top left, that's the house before. So the roof was 
Some of it was gone. When we got there, it was covered in a tarp, and this obviously is the house after. We were truly blessed, uh, blessed to be there. Um, a wonderful, wonderful experience. We got to minister. Now, this is interesting because this house is in a community called El Tuque. Can you say that with me? El Tuque. That's like the picture from the Yankees, but with a T instead of a D. Right? So uh, we got to minister in a church there. I got to preach in a church there, and we worked in this community all week. And when I got back, I called my mom, and she said, well, well where were you? And I said, well, I, you know, we were in El Tuque. And she says, well, that's where I grew up. Um, so it was a blessing for me personally to be able to go full circle and, and do ministry in a place where my mom was born. And let me tell you, we did ministry. At least 17 mosquitoes got saved on my watch. I will tell you, we did some spiritual warfare against mosquitoes. And this is, this is a true story. One of them was a stowaway in my luggage on the way back. So I get home, and I open my, my uh, suitcase, and a mosquito flies out and bites me in the head, right on the forehead. True story. Uh, but it was a blessing. I need to encourage you. There will be more mission trips opportunities for 2019. We, uh, there will be a Cuba trip. There will be a Haiti trip, and very likely another trip to Puerto Rico. So um, why do we like the Caribbean? Because it's warm. <laughs> um, but... As you see those, please consider getting involved. Um, it is a sacrifice. You pay to go on a mission trip, but I promise you, you get so much more back. You're blessed. To hear this man's story, th this was an older couple, and uh, they, they were Christians. And um, here's the, the interesting thing. They, they hadn't been married very, very long. This was a second marriage for both of them. And he saw this house, uh, and it was for sale. Uh, this was going back about six years ago. And he went to the bank to get a loan. And the bank told him no. And he said, well, I'll be back next week for the money. That's what he said to the banker. I'll be back next week for the money. In the meantime, the guy who was selling the house tells him, listen, someone else showed up and they've got cash, so I, I'm not going to sell you the house. Well, that guy had a dream that night. And God told him, don't you sell that house to anybody but Carlos. So Carlos goes to the bank the following week, gets the loan, and pays $10,000 less for the house than he had originally agreed to. All right? So well, that's, that's the before. But when we got there, that's what the house looked like. The hurricane had taken several pieces of the roof off. The roof was covered in a tarp. The house was in disarray around, and they were completely overwhelmed. There was no money from insurance, no money from FEMA. And I spoke with him. His name was Carlos, and his wife's name was Rosa. And he said, I prayed. He said, I prayed to God. I said, God, I need help, and you'll either give it to me or you won't, but I trust you. So he was praying for this help before we got there. And when you go on a mission trip, you get to be the answer to somebody's prayer. You know what I'm saying? It's a blessing. And we went, and we got to see a transformation in their lives, just even how they received us, how they interacted with us. And at the end... They just, uh, uh, they blessed us more than we blessed them. But we'll have a, uh, like a slideshow or a video that we'll post on the website probably by the end of this week. So stay tuned. But as you hear more about mission trips, please prayerfully consider it. It will change your life. It will shred your heart um, for the kingdom. Now, if you uh, are so kind, please open your Bibles this afternoon to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I'm reading verse 8 and 9.
2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. And the scripture says, David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named the place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called today. David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? Heavenly Father, we thank you this afternoon for your goodness. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for you already here, you already moving in our midst, and we thank just praise you. We ask that you just uh, open our hearts today to hear the word, O oh Lord God, that we might be transformed by your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're still in the Fearless series. We're still in the Fearless series. A few weeks ago, Pastor Steve brought an amazing message titled, Fearless, the Heart of Worship. And Pastor Steve taught us that David had a heart that sought after the heart of God because David had a heart for worship. And Pastor Steve inspired us all to be more worshipful as he preached about how David danced with all his might when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Jerusalem. David demonstrated fearless worship that day. And for the next few moments, I'd like to revisit that occasion because there was another fearless thing happening that day. If you remember, we found out that this was not David's first attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem. So the successful completion of this mission was, for David, a fearless comeback. And that's the title of this afternoon's message, Fearless Comeback. So let me give you some of the context. After pursuing and persecuting David for several years, for a number of years, Saul had finally died. And his son, Ishbosheth, who was the heir to the throne, reigned for two years after him, and then Ishbosheth died. So now the hearts and minds of the people were turned back to David. And David, who had already been king of Judah for seven and a half years, was now crowned king over all of Israel. And his coronation was followed by successful military campaigns against the Jebusites and the Philistines. David had conquered ancient Jerusalem, and now it was called the city of David. It was the place where he made his dwelling, the place where he would establish his kingdom. And God had blessed David in times of trouble, and now David was finally seeing the fruit of his labor, a kingdom firmly established. So now there was only one thing left for David to do. There was one thing that he still needed to do, one more thing that would publicly cement the image of his kingdom as being established by God. David had to bring the Ark of the Covenant back from Kiriath-Jerim to dwell in the city of David. So David assembled 30,000 men, 30,000 men. And he marches them down to Kiriath-Jerim to create a grand procession for the ark to be returned to the city of David. And they place the ark of the covenant on a new cart and they set out for Jerusalem. And so began 
an elaborate parade of celebration and worship. Verse 5 tells us, David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments. So imagine this, picture this if you will. 30,000 men went with David to go get the ark. And all of Israel knew what was going on because David had made a public declaration that this is what was going to happen. So you can imagine 30,000 people marching together in a parade with music and with singing and with celebration and all of the people coming out to line the streets or line the path to see what was going on. But then verse 6 says that the oxen stumbled and suddenly everything changed. In the midst of David's great public celebration, in the midst of David's great public worship, in the midst of David's great public triumph, suddenly everything changed. The oxen stumbled, and Uzzah, who was accompanying the cart, extended his hand and touched the ark to steady it, and God struck him dead. Immediately on the spot, Uzzah died right beside the cart. And this moment, which was supposed to symbolize God's public endorsement of David's kingdom, became God's public rebuke of David's actions. And this is where we join the story in verse 8, where we find that David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah and that David was now afraid of the Lord. And he'd ask, how can I ever bring the, back, bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? But please understand that I'm not disparaging David's motives. David clearly wanted God to be the center and the focal point of his kingdom. The problem wasn't David's motives. The problem was David's methods. You see, when God gave the design for the ark, he also gave specific instructions on how it should be handled. And it was to be carried on the shoulders of priests. But 20 years earlier, when the Philistines had captured the, car, the, the ark and found themselves cursed by the ark, they returned it, and they placed the ark on a cart that was drawn by two cows. Why is this important? Because when David allows the ark to be transported on a new cart, he's allowing the ark to be treated with the same contempt that the Philistines had. So it was not the motives. It was the methods. Now remember, this was supposed to be a great public win for David. He had brought 30,000 men with him to retrieve this ark, and all Israel was standing by to see this happen. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever publicly declared your intentions to something only to fall flat on your face? Because declaration is important. And I teach this. I teach the deeper and wider class. And in lesson one, I teach that if you want to change something, one of the things that you should do is make a declaration. You should declare that you're going to do it. Because once you say it, people will hear you say it. And now there's more accountability and you're less likely to weasel out of it. Right? So if I declare that I'm going to lose weight and then you see me at McDonald's, that's how that works. So have you ever been there? 
Have you ever publicly declared your intentions? By the way, I was at McDonald's because I found the weight. I had lost it. That's where it was the whole time. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Have you ever publicly declared your intentions? Have you ever put yourself out there only to fall flat on your face? Have you ever had the right intentions and the right motives but had a single oversight which changed the tone of the dialogue. That's exactly what happened to David. And all of Israel was there to watch his own personal train wreck. Now, David would have imagined every last detail of how this day was supposed to unfold. He probably even felt a little bit of pride as he thought of himself as being the king who would restore true honor to the Ark of the Covenant. And now, instead, he would go down in history as the king whose failure to implement God's instructions cost a man his life. Wow. What a difference a few moments make. From great celebration to sudden mourning. Maybe your situation isn't as drastic. Maybe you didn't get somebody killed. Maybe you did. Maybe... You set out to publicly do something. And the result was so crushing that it made you decide to never, never, ever publicly declare an intention again. Maybe you told everybody, I'm going to get that promotion, only to see someone else get it instead. Or maybe you told everyone, hey, it's only a matter of time before we get engaged. And then you find yourself breaking up. And maybe you told everyone, I'm going to start my own business. And then find that you have to close up shop. It's overwhelming. It's frustrating. And frankly, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I know. I've been through it. Embarrassing. Yes, I've been through it. How? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Just after the last service, I was talking to somebody that said, Pastor, do you need something to get something to eat? And I said, no. When I'm speaking, I try not to eat, and I definitely stay away from coffee because it goes right through me. <laughs> 30 seconds later, my phone rang. It was my daughter. She said, Dad, your microphone is still on. We can hear everything on live stream. I know, I cried too. <laughs> but that's not actually what, I'm talk what I was talking about. I want to share something with you. When I was younger, I experienced great favor in my professional career, great favor from the Lord. Uh, when I was young, I worked on the New York Stock Exchange, and I made a pretty decent living. I think I thought I was living the American dream. You know, I was in my 20s, so this is just a couple of months ago. Uh, <laughs> I was in my 20s, and I owned my own home and a brand-new car. I had a great family, a wife, and three kids. But there came a moment where I decided that I had had enough of the New York rat race. September 11th changed everything, and I just wanted to get away. And after praying, I decided to sell my house and move my family to Florida. Now, some of you may have already heard this story. 
If that's you, turn to your neighbor and tell them, pay attention, this is going to get good. <laughs> so I declared to everyone that I was going to move to Florida. I declared to everyone that I was going to move and build the house of my dreams and live happily ever after. So I sold the house and we moved to Florida. I leased a house in Florida and I took a job as a stockbroker. And uh, after we moved, I resigned three days after I started because I couldn't reconcile my morals with what I was being asked to do. But that was okay because I had money in the bank and I was working with a builder who was going to build me a beautiful, the, the, the beautiful five-bedroom house of my dreams. And we had a verbal agreement in place regarding the cost of certain customizations when suddenly I heard that he was no longer writing contracts. So I called him to ask him what was going on, and he indi indicated to me quite responsibly, as a matter of fact, that he was not going to write any more contracts for at least 30 days so he wouldn't fall behind on his production. I asked him, well, in 30 days, will my house cost the same thing? And he said, no. And I felt indignant. And so I chose to take my business elsewhere. And luckily, I found another wonderful custom builder who was going to build me the beautiful four-bedroom house of my dreams. We signed a contract. But the day before we closed on the loan, he called me and indicated that he could not, in fact, build the house with a contract price and needed to renegotiate. Again, I felt indignant. And I decided to take my business elsewhere. <laughs> and luckily, I found another custom builder who was going to build me the three-bedroom house of my dreams. <laughs> when I wrote this, it wasn't supposed to be funny, just so you know this. Yes. We signed the contract and closed on the loan. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited for construction to begin on our property. We waited a month, and then several months, and then a year, and then a year and a half. All the while being reassured by the builder that the county was simply behind on issuing permits. Then it happened one Sunday morning. On our way home from church, I stopped to get the newspaper. And there on the front page was my builder. 72 counts of fraud. 72 counts of fraud. And when I spoke with the attorney general, he told me that I was lucky because the builder had not actually started any work on my property. But there were people who had paid cash for an entire house, and all they had was four walls and subcontractors who had placed liens against their properties, and now they had to satisfy the liens and hire a new builder to finish their home. I got off lucky. The builder was eventually sentenced to 20 years. So here we were, no house, no savings. We struggled for a while. It was hard. It was tough. I mean, I was working. I was working for the bank, but... It was difficult. My grand plans had failed. There was no beautiful house. There was no happily ever after. What there was was pain and regret 
and shame. And I, who had once, at one time, considered myself to be the most successful in my family, now, at 33 years of age, I had to call my mom and ask her if I could move back in with my wife and children. And that was a destructive blow to my pride. We took everything that we owned, we put it in storage, we packed up the cars, we drove to New York, and the five of us shared a single bedroom in my parents' house in Rosedale for several months. I felt angry that it had turned out like this. I was afraid that things would never turn around for us. That's how David felt. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah, but David wasn't angry at the Lord. David was angry about what had happened. I think that David was probably angry at himself playing back the events of the day over and over again, asking himself, how could I have missed that? How could I have overlooked the handling of the ark? How could I blow this? And then if he's anything like me, he probably replayed in his mind every planning session, every strategy uh, session that, that he had had, realizing how many missed opportunities he had to get this thing right. And so it made him angry, and he was probably embarrassed, so embarrassed, so humiliated. Hey, do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to hope and pray that you never run into anyone that you knew before your grand plan imploded? I do. That feeling is followed by fear. Verse 9 says, David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? Frustration, confusion, embarrassment, fear. Yes, fearless David experienced fear. He feared that he would never be able to accomplish this thing that he had just failed at. It's one of the things that I love about the scriptures. Our heroes are real. They're flawed humans just like the rest of us. And even though the sermon series about the life of David is titled Fearless, we know that David experienced challenges and fear and doubts and, and embarrassment and frustration just like the rest of us. You know, if you read in the Psalms, you read the Psalms that David wrote, you see so many times, you find so many times the heart of David and you understand what's going on with him and you see how real he was. You know, I love Psalm 13. You know, I read it and, and I see David sometimes wondered if God had forgotten him. David sometimes wondered how long his enemies would prosper. Psalm 13 starts, it says, Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Those how long moments are tough. That moment where you find yourself having stumbled and fallen, you're frustrated, and the whole world is going on 
passing you by, and you're wondering how long. You know, the Bible says that for God, a day is like a thousand years. But I think that when we stumble and when we fall, a day feels like a thousand years to us too. We become desperate. We have those how long moments. How long? How long? These are real feelings. How long, God? How long will you forget me? Forever? How long? Because the truth is that when you're going through that moment, it feels like God's not even there. Feels like God is not even there. Feels like God took a sick day. Feels like God had something better to do. Feels like God is looking away at something else while I am in the midst of my anguish. And I'm saying, how long, God? How long? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? How frustrating it is to feel like you're trapped underneath your enemy's foot. How long? And then David felt like he was defeated. He continues in Psalm 13. He says, turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. You're not going to die. It just feels that way. You know why it feels that way? Because we don't know what death feels like. So we just imagine that this agony that I'm going through, this must be it. But it's not. You're not going to die. All right. All right, that concludes my commercial. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. Boy, this is tough. This is tough. To stumble is hard. To hit the ground violently is harder. But to think that people are watching and pointing and making comments and spreading gossip in talking about you, that's insufferable. Because honestly, we, we all probably have somebody in our life who would be glad to see us fail. And we imagine the things and we played it over and over in our head. I went through it, you know? I can imagine people say, hey, Mr. Walsh, we went to Florida. <laughs> Don't let my enemies gloat. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. Because that's how it feels. You have this public failure. But you know what I love about David is that David knew how to make a fearless comeback. And that's what I'm challenging you to do today. To make a fearless comeback. Is David continues, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. See, realize what David is doing. He came to the point where he realized, I'm going to make a comeback. Not because I can do it, but because you can do it, God. And he goes from saying, oh, God, 
He goes from saying, oh, Lord, rescue me. Oh, God, how long? Oh, God, vindicate me. Oh, God, restore me. To get to a point where he starts saying, but, God, you will do this for me. But, God, you will lift me up. But, God, you will restore me. But, God, you will heal me. But, God, my enemies will see me triumph. And there's power in that moment. There's power in the moment where you realize I'm going to make a comeback. Not because I can do it, but because he can do it. David wasn't a man after God's heart because he didn't experience fear. It's because he knew how to make that fearless comeback. And again and again and again in the book of Psalms, you read again and again and again. The Psalms that David wrote where, he's, where he starts with, oh God, but he ends with, but God. Each of these Psalms, they begin with panic. They begin with fear. But they end with victory. You see, there's no such thing as fearless without fear. It's what we choose to do in the face of fear that makes us either fearful or fearless. And newsflash, sometimes, sometimes the choice to be fearless isn't instantaneous. I don't know how long it took David to get from writing verse 1 to verse 7. It could have taken days, it could have taken years. But here's the interesting thing, and here's the thing we we really need to to pause and think about. Yes, David stepped right up to face Goliath. Yes, David stepped right up to face the Philistines. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart. But after this massive, public, embarrassing failure, David decided to take the ark to the house of Obed-Edom in Gath. And he decided to take some time to reevaluate the situation. Some of us here today might be in the midst of reevaluating some things in our lives, and that's not a bad thing. Sometimes we need to reevaluate our priorities. Sometimes we need to reevaluate our relationships. Sometimes we need to reevaluate our objectives. Sometimes we need to reevaluate our motives so that we can make the minor adjustments that are needed in order for us to succeed. You see, re-evaluation does not make you a failure. Refusing to go on makes you a failure. And maybe you've been embarrassed. Maybe your pride is hurt. Maybe you limped away from your last fight. But you have the ability today, right here and now, to choose whether or not your story ends here. To decide whether or not this is the final chapter. See, I want you to know that God has given you the potential for a fearless comeback, but you have to make the decision to keep moving. Martin Luther King Jr. said, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. And Winston Churchill once said, if you're going through hell, keep going. And Steve Malazzo once said, your greatest setback is God's greatest setup for your greatest comeback. Now, David could have decided, this is too embarrassing. Uh Uh-uh, I ain't going to do it. David could have decided, this isn't fair. I was trying to do a good thing. Why did God do this? This isn't fair. Well, did you know that God's not fair? The Bible doesn't say that God's fair. The Bible says that God is just. What's that mean? Means that God does just what he wants to do, just when he wants to do it, and just however he feels like it. 
God is God. It's in his job description. But that's not what David said. David would never have had his fearless worship experience if he didn't first choose to have a fearless comeback experience. David reevaluated, but he didn't let pride or embarrassment get in his way. David had a dream. David had a goal. He had an objective. And he knew that he had unfinished business. The Bible says that he watched and he saw that the ark became a source of blessing and prosperity for the house of Obed-Edom. And he knew that God would not withhold the blessing from the house of David. But David had to make a choice. He had to choose his fearless comeback. You know, 1 Chronicles chapter 15 tells us that David was very meticulous in the process for transporting the Ark of the Covenant the second time around. And that David was successful in bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David. So David had reason to celebrate. David had reason to dance. But in order to be fearless, David had to overcome fear. Verse 9, David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? See, David's fear was not just fear of failure. David had experienced the fear of disappointing his heavenly father. David feared not being able to come back from that disappointment. Some of you here today might be experiencing the same fear right now. The fear of not being able to come back from wherever it is that you've gone. The fear of not being able to come back from disappointing our Heavenly Father. But Jesus reassures us that we can make that fearless comeback as well. You know, Jesus tells us a parable in Luke chapter 15 about a man who had two sons, and it's one of my favorites. The younger of the two sons decided that he didn't want to wait for his inheritance, basically saying, Dad, give me my cash, and then you're dead to me. Well, that father gave his son the inheritance, and then the son moved away. You might have heard the story. The son squandered it all and found himself needing to make a comeback just like I did 11 years ago. And though the son figured he couldn't make that comeback, he was surprised to find his father welcoming him, surprised to find his father waiting for him by the side of the road. I love this. And I'll tell you, the, the, the Bible doesn't say this, but I want to tell you what I think. I, I don't think that it was a coincidence or a surprise that the father saw the son as he was coming. I think that the day that the son left, the father purposed in his heart that he would be expecting his son's fearless comeback. I think that every day the father went out and he surveyed the land to see if his son was coming to see if his son was making the comeback. And he looked around and looked for the, what's the best place where he can get maximum visibility to see if his son is coming. Where is it? Where is the best spot 
so that I can see whether or not my son is coming. And I think he eventually settled on a spot. I think he found a spot where he could see, he could sit up high and see whether or not his son was coming. And I think that he stayed there. I think that he sat there every day by the side of the road waiting for his son. And I think that that story went something like this.
my riches are all gone I have no friends they've left me all alone now I must work to eat each day my father's servants aren't treated this way I regret the day I walked away from home as I regret my rebellious choice I am greeted with a loving voice I don't deserve all this mercy I receive on this day son you are forgiven let me take you by the hand I'll lift you up I will restore you I will give you strength to stand every moment you've been gone I long to shelter you again and I've waited to this day by the side of the road son you forgiven let me take you by the hand i'll lift you up i will restore you i will give you strength to stand every moment you've been gone i've longed to shelter you again and i've waited to this day by the side of the road to this day by the side of the You need to understand why the song is, is so important. You need to understand that there is a father who was waiting every day and that there's a heavenly father who's waiting, a father who's sitting right there who's waiting for his son's fearless comeback. And a son who's gone his own way, who suddenly decides, I need to make my fearless comeback starts stumbling and limping his way back home because I know I have to get back to the father, but the son didn't think that he could ever be restored to his father. And if you can imagine, if you can visualize him stumbling, filthy, dirty, smelly, stumbling, and in his mind as he's walking along, he's thinking, when I see my father, I'm going to stay at a distance, and I'm just going to ask him if I can be a servant, because I can never be a son again. But as he's walking, he sees his father, and his father sees him, and his father knows that's my baby boy, and his father won't take his eyes off of him, and he keeps walking towards his father, and he wants to, he wants to keep a distance, but his father won't have it. His father 
father embraces him. His father throws his arms around him. His father loves him. His father restores him and brings him back. He can't make his fearless come back on his own, but his father can lift him up. His father can restore him. His father can give him a new robe. His father can give him a new ring. He can, you can make your fearless come back. You need to understand that when I tell you that I've made my comeback, I'm not boasting. I'm confessing that once upon a time, I picked a fight that I couldn't win. But God, but God, but God. David had his day where he had fearless worship, but first he had to make a fearless comeback. And I'm challenging you today to make your fearless comeback. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you've been. But you can come back. And I can tell you that the way that that father saw his son waiting, saw his son coming, that the way that father was waiting for his son's comeback, our God in heaven is waiting for your comeback. Our God in heaven wants to help you make your comeback. And he's ready today. He wants to make a new covenant with you. He wants to restore you. And Pastor Henry is going to come up right now. He's going to lead us in communion because this communion is very important. It's our covenant with him. It's accepting his sacrifice for us once again and making our fearless comeback. God bless you. Have a